you and I have something in common that we've talked about before. We have many things in common. What are you referring to in specific? In this specific instance, I am talking about the fact that both of us grew up in religious cults. Yes, this is true. This is one of the many things you and I have bonded over. We had originally thought about doing an episode on sex cults because sex cults have been in the news a lot lately, especially with the Nexium cult, which people have been labeling a sex cult. They got some notoriety because some minor celebrities had joined the cult. Oh, it was most definitely a sex cult. And in looking into the sex cults, there tends to be one unifying factor that they all have. Charismatic perverts. Yes. They are run and formed by charismatic perverts. Somebody that has a big personality, but also has... A fire in their pants. And have a strange relationship with that fire in their pants. <laughs> We've decided that we are going to be doing two-part episode about sex cults and charismatic perverts. This is part one, where I am bringing my research and information to the table. And then next month, in part two, you'll be bringing whatever information you dig up on sex cults and charismatic perverts. This is a fact. Before we get into our sex cults and charismatic perverts, I do want to remind everybody that you can call into the podcast if you have questions comments, you want to add something, have a strange soundbite you want featured in an upcoming episode, or have suggestions for topics that we should cover, you can give us a call and leave us a message at 614-R-DeGray. That is 614-733-4739. You ready to get down and dirty with some kinky, extroverted, charismatic perverts? You know I am. Let's have at it. Do you like spooning? Yes, I do. You enjoy a good spoon? Very much so. You know this. Do you like spoons? Um, yeah, yes. I mean, I know that spoons are used as a measurement of energy so everyone has a certain amount of spoons in the course of a day and you choose how you're going to utilize your spoons. Yes, I know you're big into the spoon theory. I am. I am big into the spoon theory. This is true. The Welsh also have love spoons. Did you know this? I didn't. What is a love spoon? A love spoon is a carved wooden spoon that has no functionality whatsoever but is given to a desired loved one in Wales. So you carve a useless wooden spoon and then give it to someone that you're into and you want to bang? Yeah, or marry. And there's different designs that are incorporated into the spoon that speak of different things, like I am promising you a house because there's a lock carved into the spoon, or I will work hard for you because there is a wheel carved into the spoon. Huh. Okay. I'd never heard of Love spoons, Welsh love spoons before. That's kind of cool. You can buy them on Etsy. Uh, on the list of things I'll never be doing. But... <laughs> it's buying a love spoon? 
on Etsy, correct, yes. I also was curious to see if there was any sort of paraphilia associated with cutlery, flatware, or silverware, and I couldn't find one. Are you aware of any sort of sexual philias associated with cutlery? Well, I do know that there is a fetish for inanimate objects, and people will fall in love with the Eiffel Tower or chandeliers or specific items of furniture. Um, yeah, there's there's object philias. Right. So if there is, uh, I do know that a woman had considered herself married to the Eiffel Tower, and I read about a case of a woman who was marrying her favorite chandelier, but was also in an open relationship and could see other chandeliers. <laughs> it's good that she was progressive enough to be in an open relationship and wasn't limited to just one chandelier. So if you could have relationships like that with chandeliers, there's got to be someone out there who's super into spoons or cutlery. There's 8 billion people on the planet. Someone has a boner for spoons. Uh, that's what I assumed, but I could not find any definitive evidence of it online. There were some people that had asked questions about spoons and forks online. I decided to coin my own term for the love of silverware and cutlery. <laughs> I'm going to call it sporkophilia because it combines spoons and forks and it's a paraphilia. So if you know of anybody, give us a call that might have sporophilia and has an unnatural, I guess it wouldn't be, I shouldn't say unnatural, but just... Yeah, don't kink shame. I'm not kink shaming you. You know, what you choose to do with your flatware and the privacy of your own home is entirely up to you. We're not here to judge. No. But what we are here to do is talk about sex cults and charismatic perverts. What does that have to do with spoons? I'm glad you asked. It has to do with Oneida Limited. Uh, I haven't heard of them. Go on. Oneida is one of the world's largest designers and sellers of stainless steel and silver-plated cutlery and tableware. It is also the largest supplier of dinnerware to the food service industry in North America. All right, that's fascinating, I guess, but what does that have to do with sex cults? The Oneida Company that we know today got its start as part of the Oneida community, a 19th century polyamorist communist Christian utopia. <laughs> Say what now? It all started with a man named John Humphrey Noyes. You hear that sound? I do. That's us traveling back in time to the magical year of 1811. John Noyes was born September 3rd, 1811. He was an awkward and introverted young man who grew up lamenting his feelings of sexual frustration, which I've noticed seems to be a pattern with a lot of young men. They tend to be very frustrated with their sexuality, especially when they're not getting any. That does tend to happen. I have noticed that, yes. Back then, in the early part of the 19th century, tent revivals were huge in the United States. People could go there, be preached to, and it was a time where the conservative communities in the United States could let their hair downs and start acting in ways that they would 
never do in normal daily life. Speaking in tongues, dancing, shaking. I am aware that people can definitely use religion as an excuse to get a little freaky, yes. John Noyes' mother was concerned for her son, so she suggested that he go to a tent revival, which he did in the fall of 1831. The 20-year-old virgin discovered at this tent revival that he could channel all his erotic energy into Christianity. It wouldn't be the first time that someone had attempted to channel erotic energy into Christianity, yes. Oh, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> Based on this experience, he felt called to join the ministry and attended seminary at Andover in Newton, Massachusetts for a year and then went to Yale. While in his second year at Yale, Noyes made what he considered a major theological discovery. While attempting to determine the date of the second coming of Christ, Noyes became convinced that the event had already occurred. His conclusion was that Christ's second coming had taken place in 70 AD and that, therefore, mankind was now living in a new age. Based on this revelation, he decided that man had an independent will given by God and that this independent will came from God therefore rendering it divine. Noyes proclaimed that it was impossible for the church to compel man to obey the law of God and to send him to eternal damnation for his failure to do so. Based on all this, on February 20th, 1834, he declared himself perfect and free from sin. Naturally, yes, of course. Well, I'm free from sin. I don't believe in it. I, I feel no guilt for any of my transgressions. Noyes claimed that his new relationship to God canceled out all his obligation to obey traditional moral standards or the normal laws of society. It's very convenient when a belief that you have allows you to not feel guilt for following anyone else's rules. He had achieved complete holiness on earth. And therefore, nothing he did would ever be a sin. He also felt liberated from the imperative to follow governmental laws. That's always convenient. It is quite convenient. And I don't think the government really accepts that as an argument when they come to arrest you for something. Be like, oh, I'm sorry. I don't recognize your laws because I've become divine on earth. <laughs> no, they, they tend not to accept that one. Like, sorry, sir, you still have to pay your taxes. Because of these radical ideas and his heresy, Yale kicked him out and stripped him of his rights to preach. He did manage to convert a few people to his new belief, most notably Abigail Merwin, who he saw as his partner in his crusade. He left Merwin in New Haven, Connecticut in May of 1834 to go to New York to preach. While in Manhattan, he hallucinated a passionate encounter with God's spirit and became convinced that he was being besieged by the devil. For three weeks, dirty and deprived of sleep and food, he roamed the streets, desperately warning of the impending arrival of Christ's judgment to anyone who would listen. Where there is a judgment to come, there is a wrath to come. But if you come to Christ, you'll be made anew.
I would say that he's kind of a trendsetter because I don't think you can walk down any street in New York these days and not have some crazy homeless nut job yelling at you about Christ's next coming. That is pretty standard for New York, yes. So possibly John Noyes was the original crazy hobo religious nutbag on the corner yelling to you, repent, repent, for the end is near. In the fall of 1835, he received news that Merwin had become engaged to another man and he was devastated. To comfort himself, he embraced the popular 19th century concept of spiritual spouses. Do you know what a spiritual spouse is? Um, no. The idea goes like this. Couples married for earthly reasons, such as financial stability or to solidify family lines, right? The traditional marriages that have happened in the past for one reason or another. But a man or woman's true soulmate could be someone else entirely. That person would be their husband or wife in heaven where they would engage in angel sex. Oh. Huh. So you may not marry the true love of your life in this life, but you get to be together in heaven and have all the crazy angelic fornication you could ever want. Okay. Noise wrote Merwin a letter to explain her status as his spiritual wife and moved to Ithaca, New York, where she was living with her new man. He attempted to make contact with her, but she completely refused to speak to him. Which I would understand because if you have some crazy ex writing to you saying, oh, by the way, you're my spiritual wife. I know we can't be together now, but we'll be together for eternity in the next life. I probably wouldn't want to speak to them either. Creeper alert. Creeper alert. And then, in January of 1837, Noise wrote a letter to a friend explaining his shift from believing in spiritual wives to spiritual polyamory, which he insisted would be enacted on earth once Jesus arrived. He is quoted as saying in this letter, When the will of God is down on earth, as it is in heaven, there will be no marriage, exclusiveness, jealousy, quarreling, have no place at that marriage supper of the Lamb. I call a certain woman my wife. She is yours. She is Christ's. And in him she is the bride of all saints. She is now in the hands of a stranger. And according to my promise to her, I rejoice. My claim upon her cuts directly across the marriage covenant of this world. And God knows the end. So he was super down with the poly. Yeah. Why limit yourself, right? More is always better. In June of 1838, Noyes ended up marrying a wealthy convert named Harriet Holton. With the understanding that they wouldn't be exclusive, they would be in the free fellowship of God's universal family which was essentially what he was saying is that I don't own my wife. She belongs to God and everyone else, I suppose. Bow, wow, wow. In 1841, Noyes and some converts started the Society of Inquiry in which they practiced Bible communism, wherein converts shared everything they possibly could. 
1846, Noyes and his wife entered into the society's first complex marriage engagement with another couple. They didn't use the term polyamory or polygonous or anything like that. Complex marriage, I'm putting the air quotes, was their term for multiple people engaging in a single marriage where everybody was essentially married to everyone else. So a bunch of sacred spiritual swingers. Yeah. Complex marriage was essentially their name for open polyamory. The agreement for their complex marriage was that this way of living would be acted on when the kingdom of Christ arrived. So they agreed that they would enter into this contract for a complex marriage because both the men had stated an attraction to the opposite man's wife. So they were, I guess, very conservative Victorian era swingers. And in that day and age, you needed to make a compact saying, hey, I like your wife. I like your wife too. We're not going to really swing. But once Jesus arrives on earth, then we're just going to have at each other's spouses, right? Okay. So they agreed that they would not act upon this until the kingdom of Christ arrived. However, when Noyes was out walking with the other man's wife, he felt overwhelmed with passion and quickly decided that God's kingdom had already arrived right then and there. Well, that's convenient. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, I've just channeled the energy and I think Christ is risen. And so am I. (laughs) (laughs) It's a miracle. Other couples eventually joined the agreement, and they began engaging in a secret group polyamory. Oh Yeah, why would you want to have to wait, as opposed to doing, I have a crush on you, and we'll get it in the next life. Let's just do it now. Yeah. Well, and it could take forever for Jesus to come. He's He does take a really long time to come. Oh, yeah? We'll get to that later. So they were engaged in this secret polyamorous group. But like most secrets, it didn't last long. Feeling the need to brag, Noise confided in a new friend about his multiple relationships. This friend, quote-unquote, then betrayed him and took the news of Noise's extramarital affairs to the Vermont attorney. Noise was arrested on charges of adultery, but quickly released on bail, and the community fled to a farm in Oneida, New York. My takeaway is it's really hard for people to keep secrets. That's your theory on conspiracies, is that you can't have a conspiracy because eventually someone's going to talk. People like to talk. People don't keep secrets. Sorry, they don't. Well, especially this guy. I can imagine if he's the kind of guy who's like, oh, we're going to wait for Christ to arrive. But then a couple days later, we're out in this walk and I'm really enjoying your company. And by the way, (laughs) I want to be with you. I think Christ is here. Of course, he's not going to be the kind of guy that's going to keep a secret and he's going to meet some new guy and say, oh, by the way, I'm banging all these people and we have all these couples that are in this polyamorous relationship and we're pretty much just swapping around wives. Once in Oneida, the group started living together in one massive house and called themselves the community. The community started many businesses to support themselves, everything from fruit canning to animal traps and, of course, silverware production, which we discussed at the beginning of this piece. Okay, the spoons come into play. Yes, they were making a lot of money because everybody involved in the community worked at all the businesses at their own leisure, usually only about four to six hours a day. 
part of their doctrine was to eliminate egotism and exclusiveness. The first tenet of Noyes' Bible communism was to let go of emotional attachment to other people, be they spouses or even children, in exchange for a communal spirit fed by God's love. Married couples who joined the commune were told to give up their marriage spirit of sexual possessiveness and jealousy. Mothers and children, or pairs of lovers who showed too much attachment or what he called sticky love, would be punished with periods of separation. All the children, from the ages of one and a half to twelve, were moved into a separate house on the farm where they were raised by nurses and teachers. The mothers and children could see each other only during formal meetings where they would be able to have tea and play together. But if there was a sense that the mother was too attached to the child or the child too attached to the mother, the administrative council would slap these separation periods on them, saying, you can't see each other for two weeks until you can prove that you're not overly attached to each other. With that sticky, sticky love. You don't want sticky love. No. It gets messy. Back in this period, there was a lot of talk about electricity and magnetism. It was just coming to the forefront in society and everybody was involved in science and there were so many great bounds and leaps that were being made with electricity and magnetism at the time. And everybody thought that they would solve all the mysteries of the universe once they had magnetism and electricity under control. This also applied to noise because noise preached that Christ's love was an electric fluid that could be passed through words, both written and spoken, as well as through touch. But the ultimate way to charge up the community's God battery, what he called it, was through sex, of course. And if members had enough electric sex in the name of Jesus, they could achieve immortality on earth. Wow, that's a convincing pitch. So if you fuck enough, you'll be immortal. Yeah, essentially. We, we all have to go and have sex with each other to build up our God electricity. And once we get the battery full, then we'll live forever. Wow. Okay. Uh, gee, I guess I will throw myself in that there briar patch. So he's persuaded you? It's, uh, <laughs> I know it's a crock of shit, but it is definitely an excuse. I mean, what a tempting pitch. It's deeply primal for living things not to want to die. Here's the pitch. If you have enough spiritual sex, you will be immortal. Well, I guess we better start banging right now. Based on this belief of having to build up their electric god love, which I think is a great term that I want to start using more often. I got some electric god love for you. Is it in your pants? Of course it's in my pants. Bring it. All the adults in the community were free to have sex with the other adults, but it was strictly regulated. The word interview was the Oneidans' euphemism for a sexual rendezvous. In general, it was mostly the men who requested the interviews, but they would never ask the women directly. There was a whole hierarchy that you had to go through. So yes, there was free love, but it was kind of a bureaucratic free love. And they claim this is the only way that they made the community work because there was other communities that were practicing free love, but it just got messy and everybody was fucking everyone else all the time. The way they got around this was when the man wanted to interview a woman, he would go to some older, respected women of the community 
that acted as a go-between. The man would say, I want to have an interview with so-and-so. And he would ask this go-between to speak to the woman. If the woman agreed, then they would move forward with the interview. Everything was then recorded into a notebook where they would keep track of who requested an interview with whom and when the encounter happened. (sighs) They had a ledger of all of this. Yeah, so they had ledgers as to who was fucking who and at what time period. And they're like, okay, Tuesday at 10.30, I guess, you know, these two will get together and fuck each other. Like I said, it's free love bureaucratic style. But of course, after the interview, each party was then required to leave and go to their own separate sleeping quarters. People didn't sleep together. They didn't want to show too much attachment to one another. Sticky, sticky love. Because, yeah, then they would be forbidden to see one another for a couple weeks. Noyes also preached about male sexual continence. The men of the community were not allowed to ejaculate. Wait, wait, wait. So they're doing these interviews and they're putting it in a ledger, but the guys don't get to come? They they can't come. And there's a, there's a reason why. I'll explain in a minute. So yes, so all the men had to train themselves to not ejaculate. And they could request interviews with any woman they wanted. However, they would not be able to ejaculate during these interviews. Noise additionally found masturbation and the practice of a man to sow seeds that he did not wish to grow to be unnatural. This was his reasoning against ejaculation. He believed that there was spiritual, loving sex and procreative sex. He put spiritual sexual intercourse on the same footing with other ordinary forms of social interaction and exchanges. Basically like, hey, what you doing? Give me a hug. I'll give you a handshake. Well, maybe we'll just have some intercourse. Sexual intercourse, as noise defined it, is the insertion of the penis into the vagina. Ejaculation is not a requirement for sexual intercourse. Are the women allowed to come? Well, I'm sure that women can come all they want because they're not just squirting fluids all over the place, um, right? Okay. Well, if you make them come properly. Mm-hmm. I think that Noyes himself had some strange hang-up about ejaculating. He is quoted as describing ejaculative sex as... A momentary affair, terminating in exhaustion and disgust. If it begins in the spirit, it soon ends in the flesh. The amative, which is spiritual, is drowned in the propagative, which is sensual. The exhaustion which follows naturally breeds self-reproach and shame. And this leads to dislike and concealment of the sexual organs which contract disagreeably associations from the fact that they are the instruments of pernicious excess. Holy shit, someone doesn't like orgasms. Yeah, I think this is his own strange hang-up. Like we said, these charismatic perverts often tend to have very odd sexual hang-ups. Fact. 
this mandate against ejaculation did also serve a very important service to the community. It acted as a natural birth control. Oh, right. Okay. So women can do interviews, but they aren't getting knocked up all over the place. Yeah, because it becomes really messy if everybody's having sex with everyone else, even if they're keeping detailed notes in their ledger as to who is banging who. But then how do you really determine if there's children born, whose children they are? The way they did it was that when a couple wanted to have a child, they would have to submit a formal request to the community for approval. They would then evaluate these requests. And if they decided that it was a good match, they would go ahead and let the couple have procreative sex, which I guess is the dirty, dirty sex, in order to get a child, as long as the man wasn't spilling his seed needlessly, right? I'm wondering how they were able to convince these dudes to have all of this sex without having orgasms. Weren't there any accidents? Like, whoops, I, uh uh-huh. Were there any accidental pregnancies or accidental orgasms? I'm sure I didn't read anything in the research about that. All I knew is that they were attempting to control who could ejaculate and when. This selective breeding process also led to their own form of eugenics. Noise wasn't interested in eliminating any certain type of race, physical feature, disease, or deformity. What he wanted was to breed his followers based on their moral natures. His hope was if he bred the holiest of his followers together, They would give birth to a race of immortals, which he called stripicults, with the goal of hastening Christ's kingdom. If you could prove that you were spiritual and holy enough, then you would get first choice for copulation, and they would choose, okay, I guess you are pious enough and holy enough to have sex with this other pious person, and you will have a super immortal Christ child. No, it's a pretty convincing pitch. (laughs) So he's getting you so far. The community started running into issues when their children started reaching puberty. As the community's children became teenagers, their untamed libidos threatened to destabilize the system of complex marriage. Because of this, Noyes came up with an ingenious plan. Each boy coming of age which was usually around 14, would be introduced to sex with a spiritually devout postmenopausal woman. This, in this way, the adolescent men could practice their ejaculation denial with the older women without fear of pregnancy. They would continue to do this until such times that they could demonstrate their ability to refrain from ejaculating and then join with the rest of the adults in their interviews. Oh, wait, wait, wait. So you, dude, wow, this man's really against orgasms, isn't he? Yeah, well, you have to practice because, you know, you're an adolescent male and you're just wanting to spray it everywhere. So, of course, what we're going to do is give him an older woman that's barren, and he can practice as much as he wants. If he spills seed, uh, no big deal. But since she is spiritually devout and on board with this practice, she can train him into controlling his orgasms. 
This was their solution for the boys. Their solution for the girls who'd gone through puberty would, of course, be to lose their virginity to Noyes himself. Oh, naturally, with his very spiritually advanced cock. Of course. I mean, what's the point of being a charismatic sex cult leader if you couldn't have your choice of fresh pubescent girls? I think that's why most of them start sex cults in the first place. Yes. But also keep in mind that at this time, in New York State, the age of consent was 12. <gasps> what? 12? 12. Oh. But of course, every 12-year-old is capable of making their own sexual decisions. That's uh, creepy. Everything started to come to an end for the community in 1878. In that year, the Supreme Court ruled to ban polygamy in the Utah Territory where the Mormons had settled. Inspired by this ruling, John Mears, who was a Presbyterian minister at Hamilton College, wrote an editorial for the New York Times, which appeared on April 10th, 1879. He skewered the lawmakers for ruling against polygamy, but not doing anything to stop the systematic concubinage at the Oneida community. In June of that year, the Syracuse Standard reported that the central New York authorities were preparing to have John Noyes arrested for statutory rape. He must have been having sex with girls that were younger than 12 because statutory rape mm. implies that you are having sex with somebody who is too oh. young for age of consent. <laughs> so oh. since the age of consent was fucking... To wealth. Oh. Yeah. Ah. Uh, of course, this caused noise to flee again, this time to Canada. In August of that year, noise sent a notice from Canada calling for a vote to end complex marriage. He claimed that it was in order to protect the women and children and as uh, opposed to keep anybody else in the community from facing legal repercussions for what they were practicing on the farm. The issue was that there were multiple women who had multiple children with multiple partners who themselves had multiple children with other partners. In the outside world, the single Oneidian woman and their children would suffer labels as adulterous and bastards. So the solution was to end complex marriage and couple everyone up into more traditional families. The community voted overwhelmingly in favor of Noyce's proposal, which was set to end complex marriage as of 10 p.m. on August 28, 1879. That sounds very well organized. The whole thing sounds very well organized. These were the people keeping detailed records of who was having sex with whom. So, of course, in true bureaucratic fashion, be like, okay, 10 p.m., that's it. No more complex marriage, no more polyamory. You have until then. Everyone get your interviews in while you can. Oh, yes, and they did. Many members of the United Community spent their final day with multiple lovers, knowing that they would never be able to interact or interview them again. After this date, the United Community broke up and restructured its businesses as a joint stock company called the Oneida Community Limited, out of which 
the silverware manufacturer started to thrive. So the spoons got their start in a sex cult. Yeah. Huh. The shares of this new company were divided based on who initially invested the most money into the community, as well as how much labor the individuals had put into each one of the businesses that the community controlled. Then there was a mad dash for men and women to pair off and form more traditional nuclear families. This was guided by the leaders, but some women and children were left behind. Some women didn't get husbands and ended up as quasi-destitute, while others were partnered with men that held substantial amounts of Oneida shares and became very wealthy as their company interests grew. So there was a surplus of women? They tend to have a surplus of women in these sex cults, right? Oh, yeah, you're right. That's true. I've never seen a sex cult that's a sausage party. (laughs) True. Sadly... In 1947, the company, trying to hide its scandalous roots, burned all of the historical papers they possessed, including original members' diaries, letters, and the community notes and logs in terms of their sexual practices. The only things that survived to tell the tale of this experimental community of people are bits and pieces that were maintained by the individual families themselves. So the next time you're out eating and you happen to look at your plates or your silverware and you see the Oneida mark, know that the silverware in your hand is the last remnant of a pseudo-Christian communist sex cult. Noted. Spoon! Previously on Dirty Talk After Hours. hours. Yeah, are you ready for this final volley? I'm ready. All right, let's, let's do, do it. This. All right, hunker down. Oh shit, it looks like they're regrouping. What are they doing over there? Oh, crap! Incoming! Ah! Nate, don't you hear that laughing noise? There's no laughing. Or there's a scratching. Scratching? I... What do you mean? After Hours, available exclusively on Patreon every Monday morning.
if you do want to get access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast, you can get it in one of two ways. You can follow Rain DeGray on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Rain DeGray. You have to type it out exactly. I'm not searchable because I'm naughty. She has been blacklisted. She's in the adult ghetto. I'm a bad, bad girl. Or you can head on over to our brand spanking new shiny Dirty Talk podcast Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash Dirty Talk podcast. Either way, if you pledge at $5 a month, you will get exclusive weekly access to the Dirty Talk After Hours podcast. That was my first tale of sex cults and charismatic perverts. Got a little weird, right? Uh, that's certainly one way of putting it, yes. This next tale of sex cults and charismatic perverts gets even stranger. How? It all starts with a man named David Brant Berg. Okay, go on. He was actually born not too far from us in Oakland, California on February 18th, 1919 to some Christian evangelists. In 1968, under the name Moses David, he founded the organization known as the Teens for Christ in Huntington Beach, California. He was trying to tap into the hippie free love movement of the time and draw the youth into his unique construct of Christianity, which revolved around open sexual practices. The group, which later renamed itself the Children of God, had some very eccentric practices for a Christian sect. Eccentric how? Most of Berg's teachings came in the form of a strange mix between pornographic comics, biblical verse, erotic stories, and his musings on life and sexuality, which he called the Mo Letters. Okay, I think I've actually heard of the Mo Letters. I think of them as kind of religious Tijuana Bibles. That's the way I like to think of them. <laughs> okay, I can see that. One of Berg's main teachings was that God loved sex because it was beautiful and spiritual, and Satan hated sex because it was beautiful and spiritual. So if you were having a ton of sex with a ton of people, you were pleasing God. Additionally, you were pissing off Satan, which any Christian would want to do. I think this would be a great pickup line. Be like, hey, baby, what you doing later tonight? You want to go piss off the devil? That would be a very effective line. I'll yeah. have to use that sometime. Additionally, he taught that masturbation was a gift from God, and you should do it all the time, of course. So when you weren't busy pissing off the devil with having sex with a bunch of people, you should just be rampantly beating off as well for, for God's sake. It's very important. God needs it. It was especially important that while engaging in intercourse or masturbating, you were thinking about having sex with Jesus. Uh, uh, yes, whenever I'm having sex or masturbating, I'm thinking about Jesus. I've always found Jesus to be kind of a cock block. 
whenever I'm out on a date with somebody and Jesus comes up, I think to myself, oh, that's it. I'm not getting anything tonight. <laughs> Wrong Jesus. I guess so. Not Jesus from down the street. Right. The members of the church use the term loving Jesus to describe their sexual relationship with Jesus. And it was taught to all members as young as 12, but more fully when they became of age at 14. So you grew up, you became sexually mature, and then you were told, hey, it's okay to play with yourself, but while you're playing with yourself, think of the Lord. That makes it okay. Yeah. I guess most people, they, they warn their kids, be like, don't do that. God's watching, right? But I guess these guys are saying, hey, do that. God's watching. And he approves. (laughs) And he wants him some. They claim that the loving Jesus teachings were a radical form of bridal theology. You know what bridal theology is, right? No. It's essentially what nuns do. It's their understanding that in the Bible, the followers of Christ are his bride, called to love and serve him with the fervor of a wife. They take bridal theology further than other Christians by encouraging members to imagine that Jesus is having sex with them during their intercourse and masturbation, though, which possibly, I don't know if any nuns have. I know you like to fantasize that nuns, being the brides of Christ, will give in to their temptations. And uh, how did you put it? Lots of rampant banging in the cells, preferably using crucifixes as dildos while they have giant nun orgies. Do you think that they are thinking about Jesus fucking them as well? Oh, God, I hope so. Yeah, they. Be- yes, of course. They better be. Yes. 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 So it was very important to think about Jesus banging you whenever you were masturbating or having sex. However, of course... Male members of the church were told to visualize themselves as women in order to avoid a homosexual relationship with Jesus because male homosexuality is just offensive and it could get you kicked out of the church. And according to them, it was just wrong. So you can have sex with Jesus, but you can't have icky gay sex with Jesus. No, that'd be gross. Obviously, Jesus could never be... A bottom because I don't know about you. I always imagined Jesus to be a power top. I always thought Jesus was a switch, personally. Possibly. Well, I don't know. Jesus ain't no queer. Mm, that's what you think. So you're a man and you're masturbating, thinking about having Jesus having sex with you, but of course you're a man pretending to be a woman being fucked by the Son of God. I guess it's not one of the strangest masturbation fantasies I've ever heard, but it's kind of up there. I know it appeals to you. Oh, yes. Women on women sex was, of course, condoned. There's usually a double standard there when it's man on man. It's icky. But, you know, oh, everybody likes, you know, two girls going at it. It was condoned as long as it happened out of love and not lust. And the women weren't lesbians. So two women could go at it as long as they weren't lesbians, i.e. having never had sexual relations with a man and being primarily interested in women. If that was the case, then it was considered to be a perversion. So you can have sex with women if you're not really into having sex with women. Yes. 
as long as it's through shared love and passion of the spirit of the other person, and also as long as you have previously had sexual relationships with a man. Okay. But at that point, I don't know, I don't imagine two women going at it thinking of Jesus. Would Jesus be a woman in that instance, or would Jesus be topping the two women? He'd be topping them. It would be a MFF threesome. Yeah, yeah, with the spiritual presence of Jesus. Right. Uh, Yes, Jesus loves himself a good orgy. (laughs) While having sex with Jesus, members of the church were instructed to say love words or dirty talk to Jesus as they were having sex. The church even went so far as publishing a list of phrases that could be used while fornicating with Jesus. And if you read down the list, it essentially starts off with like flirting with Jesus, like things to say to get Jesus in the mood. And it goes into foreplay with Jesus and then getting into the act with Jesus and then telling Jesus afterwards, hey, Jesus, you were great. You were the best I've ever had because, you know, you need to let Jesus know that he was awesome afterwards, just like any other man wants to hear. No one has ever fucked me as well as you have, Jesus. You are the best. Some of the phrases on this list include... You're so beautiful, Jesus, and so sexy. Sexier than I ever dreamed. So handsome, so naked, and so hard. I crave you, Jesus. I'm hot for you. My legs are spread to receive your penis. Enter into me. Give me your seeds. I can't wait. I've got to have you, Jesus. Your love excites me. I've got to have you inside me. It feels so good to have you inside me, Jesus. I've never known such pleasure, such ecstasy. Beyond sexual relationships with Jesus, Berg also encouraged incest and pedophilia. Naturally, Jesus approved. Well, Jesus loves him some young boy, right? Uh, I thought Jesus wasn't no queer. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No, Jesus ain't no queer. No, Never no. mind. I guess Jesus loves him some young girl. I, I don't know. This is just getting complex I don't know if Jesus awkward. approves of pedophilia and incest. Just, just on, I'm going on the record as saying that I am an atheist and I don't believe in Jesus. If there was a Jesus, I don't think that he would believe in either of those two things. Just my opinion. Berg argued that since sex was a gift from God, there was nothing wrong with practicing it with your family members, of course. It was also inferred that Berg himself had been involved in a sexual relationship with at least one of his daughters and once said that his biggest regret in life was never having sex with his own mother. Well... According to Freud, that's many young men's biggest regret. It's, I guess, very common. I never felt the need. <laughs> that's a good thing. Berg wrote 
erotic stories about having sex with his eight-year-old stepdaughter and her mother, he also compiled a 762-page book about the rearing of his adopted son, David Dito, which was supposed to be used as a manual for raising children in the church. This book outlined how Devedito was introduced to the sexual nature of the church beginning in infancy. This son later denounced the cult and ended up killing one of his former nannies who he had had sexual relations with that were explained in the book going back to when he was three, three and a half. He wound up killing the nanny and killing himself in 2005. It turns out sometimes if you molest kids, they can't handle it and snap no matter what Jesus tells you to do. I don't think, still don't think Jesus is approving of these sort of relationships. Maybe we should ask the priest. I don't think we should ask priests about that. They don't exactly have a great track record. <laughs> yeah, you know what, you're right. What's your opinion on having sex with young boys? <laughs> oh! <laughs> I guess you're right on that one. I don't know who, what, what authority we can appeal to. hey <laughs> Members of the church did have questions about incest, and Berg addressed them in some of his writings. In the booklet, Answers to Your Questions, number five, he got this question, which went, My little boy, five years old, is very sexy. He cannot even hug his mother without getting a heart on. So I thought it was bad because it makes him too familiar with his mother if she takes care of him. I believe everybody else would take care of him but until now, no one in the home has the burden to do this. What do you, Dad, think of this kind of mother and child relationship? Sammy, from Europe. His answer to the question was, What's wrong with it? It's perfectly natural. What better person to learn about sex from than his own dear mother? God's only law is love. Are you a jealous father? So the question asker is saying, hey, there's something wrong. My son's getting turned on and aroused every time he interacts with his mother. And then what I'm inferring from the question is that maybe somebody else in the household should do something about his little kid five-year-old boner, but nobody's really stepped up to do anything about his little five-year-old boner. What do you think about the mom doing something about it? I think that's disturbing. It is. All religious organizations have issues with being able to grow their numbers and attract new converts. Yes. Children of God was no different. In order to gain converts to their ways, they came up with a very innovative recruitment program which they called flirty fishing. Flirty fishing is essentially a form of religious prostitution, which the church claimed could be traced back to Matthew 4.19. Matthew 4.19. He said to them, Come after me, and I will make you fishers for men. 
female members were told to be God's whores and hookers for Jesus. The women went out and had sex with complete strangers in combination with a request for a donation or for acquired fee. Essentially, it was just a way to gain new converts, but it was also a way to raise money for the organization through escorting. The church even required that each colony spread across the globe submit a detailed report of all their fishing activity each month and created many publications directing their female members in the proper methods of flirty fishing. These publications, again, were basically pornographic comics. Some of them had titles like God's Love Slave, Jesus and Sex, and my favorite, which I shared with you, titled You Are the Love of God. And the cover of this depicts a spread eagle woman on a bed with a dildo sticking out of her vagina juxtaposed next to an image of Jesus on the cross. Okay, then. These publications additionally answered members' questions about flirty fishing, including this one they had received. Many of you asked for a definition of what should be reported as actual FFing. We would like to answer that FFing is going out witnessing the love of Jesus with the serious intent to use sex or sex appeal as the bait, regardless of the situation or place. This can be anywhere, on the street, in a park, while going to the local store, in discotheques, or in clubs. Essentially what they were doing is encouraging all the women to go out, prostitute themselves for the church, in the name of Jesus, I suppose they're thinking about Jesus while they're having sex with these strange men, collecting money, and then giving it back to the church and reporting all their activities and income on the forms that they could then submit to the church so the church could make sure and keep track that all their female members were going out and fucking enough men to keep the church afloat. So again, very well organized when it comes to the banging. Just like the Oneida Institute, they're keeping forms and, and tracking all of this? Oh, yeah. you got to treat it like a business. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Any, any good mafioso will tell you, you don't treat it like a business, it goes to hell. Naturally, we can't have that. One of the results of this flirty fishing practice was that numerous children were being born into the organization that never knew who their fathers were. These children were given the name Jesus Babies because they were taught that their true father was Jesus. I oh. guess because the women were encouraged to think of Jesus while having sex with complete strangers for money. Right. Jesus approved. Flirty fishing was officially discontinued in 1987 as a result of the growing AIDS epidemic. I guess it got too dangerous. God wasn't protecting them from AIDS. But wouldn't you think that if they were going out... And having sex in the name of God, and especially thinking of Jesus while having sex with strange men, that Jesus would protect them from STDs? Uh, you would think, but maybe God's not that powerful? So God has no sway over 
any sort of sexually transmitted disease. Why weren't they using condoms? Well, I don't know. They just weren't using condoms. Okay. You can't properly flirty fish a guy and be like, oh, put a rubber on it. Maybe they wanted the children, too. They needed more Jesus babies. Okay. As with all people, David Berg died in 1994 and went to heaven, which they believe to either be located inside the moon in a giant pyramid or on a giant glass ball spaceship that was hurling towards Earth. You take your pick. Following Berg's death, the organization tried to distance themselves from his ideals and the charges of sexual impropriety. They changed their name to the Family International and still exists today with a few thousand members spread throughout the world. Spread wide for Jesus? Spread wide for Jesus. Hey everyone, this is Rain DeGray. If you want to keep tabs on me and check out all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head on over to my website, raindegray.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter so that you and I can stay in touch. And if you are on Twitter, check me out at either Rain DeGray or the Dirty Talk Cast. Dirty Talk Podcast has a new Twitter. Just search Twitter for Dirty Talk Podcast or add us at Dirty Talk Cast. Oot. That's all I have for you today for sex cults and charismatic perverts. I'm looking forward to hearing what you're going to bring to the table next month when it's your turn. Gonorrhea. <laughs> lots and lots of gonorrhea? Yep. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing that. I look forward to sharing it with you. Um, I don't want you to share any gonorrhea with me. Never mind. I've changed my mind. <laughs> Too late. You consented. Damn it. I hope you enjoyed my installment of Sex Cults and Charismatic Perverts. I know I'm never going to look at silverware in quite the same way again. Maybe people will start getting into my sporkophilia after hearing this story. You're a trendsetter. I am a trendsetter. I do want to share the podcast challenge that I put out there every time. If you enjoy this podcast, go out and tell at least one person if you feel like you have learned something unique and special from it. This podcast can also be found on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, TuneIn Radio, iHeartRadio, and also now YouTube. We did start our own YouTube channel. Go out and find us on YouTube. We're official YouTubers. Please... If you do find us on one of those platforms, follow us, rate us. We really appreciate it, and it does help other people find the podcast. Additionally, we want to thank our honorary producers. If you want to become a producer of this show, you can go to our Patreon, Dirty Talk Podcast, on Patreon. Look us up. And at the $100 a month level, you become a honorary producer, and we will name your name at the end of every show. We will also have an after hours episode around this podcast because I found so much information about these two strange sex cults that it could have filled the podcast for each one. 
I have a lot more information I want to share about the two of them. We'll do that in an After Hours podcast right after this episode comes out. So join us on Patreon for that as well, because you get exclusive access to all our After Hours podcasts. So thank you to our current honorary producers, who are... Rolf Hansen and his wives. Yes, wives, plural. Thank you so much, Rolf. We do appreciate your ongoing support. I guess that's it. We'll see you next month when rain throws down what kind of odd sex cults and kinky, charismatic pervert information she has found. Boom. And boom goes the dynamite.